Welcome to the Independent News Hour in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. I'm joined today by the Indy Amba Gagarian. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Well, we have an amazing show for you today. In our opening segment, we look at the NYPD's move to place early curfews on popular public parks just as the summer heats up and people emerge from 15 months of pandemic lockdown. On Saturday, the NYPD sent hundreds of police into Washington Square Park to push everyone out by 10 p.m. Again, that's 10 p.m. on a Saturday evening. Many people in the crowd resisted, including some who threw empty water bottles and trash at the cops. 23 people were arrested. The NYPD's heavy-handed actions, rapid blowback, and was widely criticized by all the leading mayoral candidates, including conservative Democrats Eric Adams and Andrew Yang, who have touted their support for the NYPD throughout the mayoral campaign. Earlier today, the Indies' Zion Decato spoke with Washington Square Park goers about the new curfew and how the police have enforced it. Well, the fact that they're brutally taking people out of the park with such force is very uncalled for. And you're seeing that there's things like drug use and rowdiness happening in the park. Do you think that's true? Do you think it's exaggerated? Um, I mean, I definitely seen it and I've seen it for the past few years. I've been in New York and I mean, I used to go to NYU, so I'd get the reports of people getting, um, you know, abused or robbed or something. So there's definitely that. But that comes with the city. I mean, it's everywhere. That that was uh, uh, Chris, Christina Session and Ella. Scar- uh, Washington has always been the Washington has always been the place to be. Just to be with friends, and especially in COVID, there's no safer place in a way. And to have police come and and kind of transform a place where you know that you can be safe. You know, there's students around the same age as you. It's a community here, and like a bond in that. And to kind of have the ability to just congregate without being criticized for simply being, you know, kids in a park. I think that you're asking to have kids find new unsafer ways to to be around in the city and there's dangerous places in the city. So having to be told that Washington is no longer the place that, you know, you can safely just hang out with friends, that's that's kind of just ruining the entire experience. You just heard from uh, two Washington Park uh, goers. That was uh, the first uh, person was Christina Session, 25 years old, and then the second one was Ella Iskar, 18 years old. And now joining us to discuss what happened this weekend at Washington Square Park and its larger implications are Jay Walker, co-founder of the Reclaim Pride Coalition and founding member of Gays Against Guns. And we'll also uh, expect to be joined shortly by Alex Vitale, a Brooklyn College professor and author of The End of Policing. Jay, it's great to have you with us. Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. So, uh, first of all, you live near Washington Square Park, and we're at the park on Saturday night when the legions of uh, cops descended on revelers who were there enjoying themselves. Uh, Can you paint a picture of what went down there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had actually, 
I'll actually start when I was at home because as it happens, I happen to live on uh, on a cop shop block. I live uh, in Chelsea on 20th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. So uh, I had every intention of going to Washington Square Park to get there by about uh, 9.30 or so or 10 o'clock. Um, uh, but I had to go home first and have some grub. And as I got to my block, uh, it was filled with cops on the sidewalk at the corner of 7th Avenue and, uh, and 20th Street with several, um, with several vehicles. They were basically mobilizing before they uh, were deployed down to Washington Square Park. So then uh, I got to Washington Square Park around, uh, around 9.30, and uh, by the time I got there, uh, 9.45, and by the time that I got there, uh, all of those, uh, the, the entirety of Fifth Avenue going up several blocks from uh, the Waverly Place, Washington Square North entrance to the park was filled with police cars and the sidewalks were filled with scores of, of uniformed officers wearing, uh, you know, wearing their riot helmets, uh, just, you know, just completely filling Fifth Avenue going up for, you know, it seemed like uh, several blocks. Uh, inside of the park, um, it was very, it was very tense. Um, uh, at this point, the folks who were very aware of, of this, uh, coming police onslaught had sort of gathered in the area between the arch and the street, uh, just sort of forming a, just sort of a line, not really a line, just a, it was just a, you know, a crowd of people just sort of watching the NYPD and waiting to see what they were going to do. Um, of course, shouting, shouting things at the cops from, from across the street. Um, and then, you know, right at 10 o'clock or, you know, a, a minute or so after 10 o'clock, uh, the officers started playing their, um, their, their, uh, package sound telling people, you know, to, to, to leave the park to, to, um, to vacate the park, that if they leave, they won't get uh, ticketed. If they if they refuse to leave, they're subject to arrest. That ongoing sort of message on repeat that they program into their sound machines, uh, and then uh, and then just phalanx after phalanx started uh, marching into the park. Now there were already metal uh, by crack barricades lined up across that across uh, that entrance to the park. Uh, the, um, the folks who were in the park who were planning on, on resisting the officers had decided to keep those barricades up and to somehow use them to, to just as a, a method of, of trying to repel the officers. Uh, that did not last long. Uh, once these phalanxes of, of, of cops started streaming into the one open part of that of that line of barricades uh essentially everyone kind of took off running into deeper into the park uh to try to uh, avoid the police and then wave after wave first the the srg the strategic response group cops in their riot helmets first they went in then the um then the blue community community response team or whatever in the lighter blue on the bicycles then uh then they then they went in and then after a few more minutes uh another phalanx of of the srg uh went in uh with their with their riot helmets and then a, a group stayed at the front at the uh, curb line to um to sort of hold the line to keep anybody else from entering the park Wow. And, um, yeah, we saw some footage of that and it looked just like, uh, you know, sort of the way that the SRG, that, that strategic response group, uh, bike cops, as people call them, um, attack, you know, protesters, but it, which is unreasonable in itself, but that wasn't a protest. So, um, I, one quick question and then I'm going to ask you a more detailed one. Were, do you think that people in the park, uh, got much of a warning, knew that there was going to be a, a 1030 curfew that evening? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely the people that I saw, and I, I would say there were about there. There were some people that were still in the park, just enjoying the park um, when I when I arrived. But there were a solid hundred, hundred fifty people there standing, waiting. At the, waiting. No, okay. you know, okay. it was it wasn't organized. In some ways, that it was a protest. It was, it was an organ- yeah, because 
Friday the night before had been the first night of this curfew. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. they, were, they were ready. Okay, good to know. Thank you, Jay. So can you talk a little bit about who, well, you explained a little bit that the people there were waiting, um, who else was in the park on Saturday night, and what was the sort of tension between the park goers and maybe the homeowners who live nearby or those who may agree with the curfew? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I've seen... I, I never see the homeowners coming out and complaining in Washington Square Park, and I'm there fairly regularly. You know, over the course of the pandemic, Washington Square Park has kind of taken the place that Union Square used to have mm-hmm. in sort of progressive and progressive activist circles. Like it became the gathering place for Black Lives Matter and for you know a lot of the you know a lot of the activity that's gone on over the last year. Um, and so, um, what I have observed over the last year in terms of say noise complaints, which is one of the the things that the cops point to, is I don't see folks from the surrounding neighborhood running into the park and saying, hey, turn that down. What I see is cops who are already positioned in the park, cops who are already assigned to be in the park. Somebody starts playing music, they run over, grab their grab their speaker system or their sound system or whatever and tear it down. It's not a matter of people actually complaining about the noise. It's about the police using pre, you know, any kind of recorded noise or um, amplified sound uh, as a pretext to crack down on people. And, and really, you know, they, they, you know, I've seen people interviewed, uh, you know, and they're talking about when my kids are playing in the park, you know, in the, in the afternoon, they see homeless people lying down or they see people using drugs. And I'm like, well, that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with closing the park at 10 o'clock instead of 12 o'clock. You don't have your, your little kids playing in the park at 10 p.m., do you? So, you know, it's this is completely manufactured by the NYPD. This is the NYPD recognizing that progressive groups have been using Washington Square Park. They've been gathering. Uh, they've been organizing, uh, you know, all, all over the, the last year. Um, it's, you know, they're angry about the fact that marijuana is, 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 is now legal, that you can, you know, smoke pot on the street if you want to now, and the police can't arrest you for that. They're feeling that their, their authority is being challenged broadly, and they're using pretexts to, um, to exert it. Um, you know, similarly, you know, no, all we were told is that Washington Square Park was going to be closed at, at 10 p.m. instead of 12. But then all of a sudden, parks in the Bronx, Tompkins Square Park, all of that without the mayor's knowledge, permission, et cetera, NYPD just unilaterally decides to do this. This is NYPD flexing their muscle, um, you know, and, and kind of giving their officers a chance to, like, blow off steam, as it were. Right. So, yes, uh, you, speaking of the mayor... Uh, who at least uh, nominally is supposed to be uh, in charge of his police department. Um, he That's funny. made some comments on Monday about why he thought the NYPD's actions to uh, close these uh, parks early uh, was a was a great idea. So I think we'll we'll hear from him here in a second. That's a decision that local police commanders have to make based on what they see. So I just was not involved in that one, but I understand and appreciate that if they see a situation where it makes sense to effectuate a closure, I think that's the smart thing to do. Uh, the Washington Square Park curfew, we've had many conversations here at City Hall and with One Police Plaza about that. I think it's also the right thing to do for this moment. All right. Well, he's uh, leaving himself a, a little bit of wiggle room in, in case he uh change uh, the police department changes attack uh, going forward uh jay i want to get your reaction to the mayor's um, explanation also i want to welcome uh, alex vitale author of the end of policing uh on onto the show uh and also uh, alex get your response to the the mayor's uh rationalization of of this uh, new policy i mean, i would say that it's been clear over you know and, and made really sharply crystal clear over the course of the last year um, that the mayor is completely cowed by Shay and by the NYPD. He lives in fear of them turning against him like they did a couple of years ago when all the cops turned their backs on him as he went to the hospital to check on the officers that were, um, that were, that were shot or injured, um, and were in the hospital. Uh, he lives in fear of, 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 um, of the NYPD 
turning against him, even though he's a lame duck mayor, he's still operating from that position of of fear of the NYPD. I think it's it's a it's a very clear situation. And uh, Alex Vitale, your thoughts on the mayor's uh, rationalization and also your thoughts on why, why this is even happening. Yeah, well, uh, great to see everybody. Jay, great to be on with you. I really enjoyed listening to what you had to say. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which de Blasio is a white ethnic outer borough homeowner who hates disorder. And what he sees is is not just the late night parties. He also sees or is hearing from other white homeowners about some uptick in drug usage and, and people hanging out in the park during the day in ways that the local homeowners find disturbing and disorderly. And I think there are a lot of analogies between this and the Tompkins Square Park riots of the 1980s, where the community turned against folks who needed that park as a, as a refuge of last resort, who'd been abandoned by the city in terms of the provision of the most basic human needs, and then turned them into criminals to be managed through policing. And so I think what, what's happening here, right, is the mayor has no plan to address homelessness, no plan to address untreated mental health problems, no plan to address widespread problems of untreated substance abuse issues, opioid overdose. He has no plan for any of that. And so he's using the police and also no plan to provide young people with safe, productive outlets for for their needs, their energies, their socializing, right? And so he's just turning things over to the police who are acting on the interests of, uh, you know, the local extremely wealthy white homeowners who are like, I paid a lot of money for this view and I don't want to see people dancing in the fountain or using drugs or whatever. Right. And um, we have seen like an uptick of celebration, you could say, in different city parks. So Jay, I'll direct this, direct this question at you. What does it mean for people to have a place like Washington Square Park or Tompkins Square Park or Union Square, whatever park it may be, to go to during 15 months of the pandemic, especially with, you know, vaccination rising and summer getting underway? Well, yeah. And, and th- these parks were hugely important throughout the pandemic. You know, because you couldn't go inside, you couldn't Mm -hmm. gather inside, you couldn't see people in the indoor spaces where you're normally used to seeing people. You're afraid to have people over to your home, especially if you live with an elderly relative or children. You know, the only place that people had the opportunity to to gather together, you know, even in the dead of winter was um was in our parks you know we we felt safer because it was outdoors we had learned from the the, the period of, of the reckoning last summer that there was no huge spike after all of the protests in june and july there was no huge spike in um in in covid infections and so we knew that yeah people could gather in large numbers out of doors as long as they were masked and it you know it was relatively safe um, to do that during the pandemic. So these parks became hugely, hugely important. They became important just for community. They became important for organizing. They became important for um, for demonstrating um, all around the city. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it absolutely tracks that the NYPD uses, you know, will, will use a pretext to, to crack down on that kind of energy. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're afraid of that kind of, they're afraid of that kind of, of, of communal gathering because especially among younger people, browner people, blacker people, queer and trans people, um, these are people that the NYPD has a long history of attacking, a long history of brutalizing, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and along, and these communities have a long history of organizing against that police brutality. So. Right. And uh, I want to uh, turn to Alex uh, here with a, a question about the, the mayor's race. And in, in this political season, yeah, there's been a tremendous uh, hype around the, you know, a resurgence of crime and the need to for more uh, return to law and order uh, uh, policing. Uh, your thoughts on both how this, like how in one year's time we've gone from, uh, uh, you know, a conversation about how to, 
reform or even defund the police to where we are now, where uh, pro-police candidates are at the at the top of the polls, and and there's all this uh, hype around um, crime, which which may be up to some extent, but the, the idea that we're living in this deadly environment uh, seems greatly overblown. Uh, what, what's going on here, and and what do you make of it all? Well, you know, a year ago, huge numbers of New Yorkers were in the streets demanding that the city address, you know, profound insecurities that people are facing. The whole defund the police movement, the protests in the streets were were a demand for help. You you keep, you know, saying to the mayor and city council, you keep sending the police and what we need is real help. We need income supports. We need housing. We need protection from evictions. We need mental health services. You know, we need a whole range of things that you won't give us. You keep sending the police. And so there was an op- opportunity, right, for the city to say, you know what? Maybe we need to redirect some resources to really helping people to help stabilize the city. And instead, they just put more money into policing. They made a big show about this billion-dollar cut. There was no cut to the NYPD, no meaningful cut. It was all smoke and mirrors to, to you know, buy people off in that moment, although I don't think too many people fell for it. And nothing was really done to create new infrastructures to help people. And so then they're back to labeling people who need spaces to socialize, people who have nowhere else to go, people in crisis as criminals to be suppressed. And then once you turn a problem over to the NYPD, there's going to be violence. There's going to be racism, right? Because that's the nature of that institution. Now what we've got is a real crisis of of We've got an order crisis. We've got some areas where crime is up. It's not across the board. Crime is down in many categories. And certain mayoral candidates are taking the Giuliani approach, which is to label the city's problem as crime problem so that they don't have to change any kind of economic deals they've been making with elites and instead just criminalize their way out of these problems. So, of course, Eric Adams is doing that to some extent. Yang is doing that, although I I think he doesn't even completely understand what he's doing. uh, You know, Garcia, others are doing, while some of the other candidates are trying to say, wait a second, we need to start to create these alternative infrastructures and quit thinking police are the, you know, are the solution to every problem. Unfortunately, the major media, the major local media, have bought into the labeling and criminalizing approach. So they're backing, you know, this idea that the city is out of control and police are the solution. And that's helping Adams and helping the more conservative candidates. And it's going to be a real battle. And your thoughts on Maya Wiley, she's now emerged as something of the progressive uh, standard bearer in the race uh, after uh, Scott Stringer and Diane Morales both sort of had their implosions. And she has a long history with the police uh, as a former uh, chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, um, certainly had a a glimpse of uh, what police misconduct looks like in this city. Can you talk a little bit about her? And is she um, someone that you could envision changing the way uh, policing happens in the city? Or would we expect more of the same from her as well? I mean, I think Maya Wiley appreciates that policing is broken in some important ways. Uh, My concern is that historically she has seen the solution to that be a kind of superficial procedural reforms, you know, give the police some anti-bias training, discipline a few problematic police officers, and not really questioning why every social problem in the city has been turned over to the police. Now, lately, she has been signaling some better awareness of those concerns and some openness to having that bigger conversation. And and I'm wondering, for instance, like what did AOC ask of her in in getting an endorsement? Like hopefully there was some conversation about trying to push her to a, a stronger position about this. 
because if, if her big plan is more money for police training and more money for the CCRB, we're going to be in real trouble. Um, yeah, uh, for sure. That, that that would be disturbing. And if, for people who didn't hear the news, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, did, in fact, uh, endorse uh, Maya Wiley on Saturday at a, at, at a press conference and rally at City Hall Park. Um, and, and just shifting back uh, to the situation at Washington Square Park, uh, uh, Jay, uh, what do you uh, how do you foresee things uh, this weekend? The, the curfew is for um, Fridays through Sundays. And of course, the curfew will be in effect in in other parks as well. But um, how do you expect the the people who use the park and the in the to, uh, you know, take it from here? Yeah, I am. You know, I I expect growing organized resistance to the curfews in all the parks. Um, We saw what happened between Friday when they they closed the park. There really wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't anything organized and the police were, you know, but the police were still the police and they were still kind of, you know, violent and, and using force to clear the park on Friday night. That led to Saturday where you had a, where you had a true sort of organized a group of people taking a stand, um, you know, uh, and then Sunday, and then because of the actions of the cops on Saturday, including sort of chasing people out of the park and, off, you know, and through the streets of the West Village, if your intention is to clear the park, once they're out of the park, why are you chasing them downtown Thompson Street? Um, uh, then Sunday night, there was a huge turnout of people. Uh, more people than the police could have reasonably uh, cleared without some sort of ult- some ultraviolence, and then the police didn't show up on Sunday night at all, and people partied into the night. So um, my guess is that come next weekend, come next Friday, um, you will have larger and you know you'll have larger numbers of people at all of these parks, people that are regular users of all of these parks. Um, that are under threat of, of having these new curfews, um, taking a stand against these curfews. And eventually, um, you know, I'm reminded of last year uh, when uh, the mayor used the NYPD to enforce the mask mandate, and immediately they started to brutalize anyone black or brown that uh, wasn't wearing a mask on the street uh, while they were handing out masks pleasantly to white people sitting uh, sitting in parks. Um uh, I'm, you know, the mayor had to back down from using the police in that manner because it was, you know, it was clear, it was caught on camera, it was, it was outrageous. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the disparate treatment of of New Yorkers by by the NYPD, uh, and he had to back down. My guess is that there'll be enough pushback to this that he'll back down. Also, speaking from the perspective of of, of uh, being a planner for the Queer Liberation March. Um, it's, it, I found it kind of interesting. Our march is ending at Washington Square Park. Uh, the police are very angry at the LGBT community right now. Um, you know, I live in Chelsea. They painted over the rainbow flag that they had on my squad, on the, on the, uh, the garage door at, at the squad house next to my building, uh, and replaced it with a picture of the history of, of policing. Um, you know, I have to wonder if, you know, the reason that the Washington Square Park was, was the one chosen was because there were going to be you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of queers in Washington Square Park um, uh, who are oriented against against NYPD uh, on a Sunday. Uh, that's you know that is going to go into the into the night. So um, you know, I'm hoping that the mayor will have the sense to end this curfew before Pride Sunday. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, the the weather's not only heating up, but uh, protests at our public parks are also heating up. Uh, Jay, Jay Walker, thank you so much for joining us, co-founder of the uh, Reclaim Pride Coalition and Gays Against Guns, and Alex Vitale, uh, author of The End of Policing. Thank you also for joining us and sharing your analysis. Great to hear from you both. Yes, thank you. It was great to speak with you both. Okay. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break.
Radio Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, and I would like to welcome our second guest, Nilu Shruti. Nilu is a birth justice advocate and midwifery student and the founder of Love Child, a support space for expecting and new parents located in Manhattan's West Village. Nilu just wrote an article for us called Black Mothers Matter for the Independent June Issue, And uh, we're very excited to have her on. We'll be talking about Black mothers and midwives and how New York State can begin to reverse longstanding racist policies and practices that have allowed the medical industry to maximize profits off of childbirth while doing great harm. Thank you so much for joining us, Nilu. And um, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your article? Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, I wanted to speak to the roots of New York State's um, maternal mortality crisis. Um, So while folks were marching last May uh, for George Floyd, they were also marching for Amber Rose Isaac, Shaizia Washington, and Cordiel Street, three Black mothers um, that died last year um, while giving birth. Um, Black people in the U.S. suffer disproportionately when they give birth due to centuries of structural racism and a medical system that over the past century has labored mightily to turn birth from a natural physiological process into a much more expensive uh, medical managed procedure. Um, And New York in particular could begin to address some of uh, New York's you know, disparities in maternal mortality by uh, empowering more Black midwives and more community birth options, such as birth center. Um, The uh, history of this is longstanding. Um, This is because um, in the 1900s, the U.S. actually had 100,000 midwives, and they attended approximately half of all births. Many of these were Black immigrant indigenous midwives, had extensive training in their home countries. Um, But however, today it's estimated that there are only under 15,000 midwives in the U.S., fewer than 1,000 of whom are Black and attend only 8% of births. And this is due to a systematic disenfranchisement by the mostly white medical establishment of physicians and nurses um, who disenfranchised these community midwives through legislation such as the Federal Shepherd Towner Act of 1921, mostly painting midwives as dirty, ignorant, uneducated um, in this racist ad campaign masquerading as um, maternal and infant protection. Um, So what we have right now is a new professional class of white nurse midwives um, who largely work um, in hospitals um, while community midwives are still in New York State, um, not only not able to practice, even though they have uh, the ability to practice in 37 other states, New York State continues to criminalize community midwifery to the point where um, midwives who have been working for the last 30 years in maternity deserts upstate in Mennonite and Amish countries are being arrested and prosecuted. Um, So it is absolutely urgent, especially given that um, given that we're in, you know, coming out of the pandemic that we invest in community midwives um, in New York State. Right. And so, you know, what you described basically is that we've had black and community midwives who've been pushed out of, um, you know, being able to practice midwifery in a viable way over, you know, decades, hundreds of years at this point. Um, that's left us in a dismal situation. Um, and we have also black mothers dying at a disproportionate rate. We have less black midwives and more black mothers dying. Um, Now talk a little bit about what is going on in New York with the midwifery situation in general. Let's zoom out for a second here um, because I think people might be a little bit shocked to hear uh, how, how dismal it is here. So just to talk about New York State in particular, so New York State um, has the 11th highest C-section rate um, and among all the other states, um, as well as like the 13th highest maternal mortality rate. Um, uh, in terms of racial disparities in maternal mortality, mostly it's, you know, across the U.S., it's about Black mothers are about three times more likely um, to, to experience that versus 
in New York City in particular, uh, we're seeing that it's almost 12 times more likely to see these racial disparities in maternal mortality. So it is significant. Um, and currently, there are 37 other states, so states such as California and Texas and Florida and Pennsylvania, have not only given license to not just nurse midwives, but to community midwives as well, and seeing their um, maternal mortality rates uh, drop significantly. Furthermore, uh, the differences between nurse midwives and community midwives are significant in the sense that community midwives are three times more likely to be somebody, a midwife of color. Um, so it's imperative that we empower um, community birth um, so that, uh, especially so that uh, community workers and black midwives can serve their um, their communities. And what action is being taken to, to do that now? Of course. Um, so currently, we're very excited. For the last 20 years, there's been a fight um, to, to legislate for community midwifery. We have a bill uh, in the assembly um, that is currently sponsored. And so the big ask is for um, uh, everybody to get on board to call their assembly members, their state senators to sponsor um, and co-sponsor this community midwifery bill that will allow community midwives to practice in New York State. Right, absolutely. And we just have a couple more minutes here. Um, but tell us a little bit about um, why it's important that this bill passes and how, you know, how the, the lack of this bill um, creates a huge, um, huge barrier for community midwives to to practice currently. Yeah, so currently there is, um, you know, we don't have, there's a global shortage of midwives and we have a shortage of midwives here um, in New York City as well. So this will just allow community midwives who specialize in birth center and home birth um, to be able to have full scope of practice, which means that um, you can also start to, part of my article also does talk a little bit more about birth centers and why New York State does not have birth centers, which in comparison to California, which has 56, Texas has 92, Florida has 32 birth centers, but New York State only has two. Um, and the reason for that are these certificate of need laws that are championed by our executive. And there currently a bill that did pass the Assembly and Senate that we're very excited about that will hopefully get signed by the governor to right. remove those barriers. So it's important that we invest in community birth options and community midwives so that we can improve and expand out of hospital birth. Um, just this, just last year, I was on the show talking about um, uh, birthing during the pandemic, um, because at this point in time last year, um, as you can imagine, somebody who was giving birth was terrified to go into the hospitals um, for fear of contracting COVID. And as a result, people left the state to give birth. People switched to home birth. They were calling their home birth midwives um, and home birth midwives received as much as like you know, a hundred calls a day. Um, so investing in out of hospital community birth options is good em emergency preparedness, but it's also really good for uh, public and for birthing people. And right. um, this is the basic floor for birth justice. There's a lot more that we can work on, but these two issues, just in terms of empowering um, Black midwives, community birth options, community midwifery, um, would go a long way um, to helping New York's birthing people. Thanks so much. And a reminder to our listeners that you can call your representatives um, to push forward this bill. Is there a name of the bill quickly? Yes, the bill is for community midwifery. Um, for community and, midwifery. Great. So if you could call, push, go ahead. And the governor for the birth center bill. For community midwifery and the governor for the birth center bill. All right, everybody, and please read Nilu's article either in our issue, um, June issue 264 or online. It's Black Mothers Matter by Nilu Shruti. And um, um, one more thing, I completely forgot to mention our artists in the previous musical interlude. That was the Parkmen, and they are a Washington Square Park staple group that plays Bob Dylan covers. We are going to have our second musical break, and we will be back. Thanks so much for joining us. Your name has been 
And that was uh, Big Brother by Stevie Wonder. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find our newly released June print edition across the city in our red and white boxes. The paper hit the streets today. You can also find uh, all the articles uh, from the June issue. Uh, will be online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Uh, also, before we move on to our third and final segment, I want to encourage all our listeners who can do so to give generously to WBAI. Community radio happens because of listeners like you who step up and support it. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. You can also go to give2wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation, or you can sign up as a monthly sustainer as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and help keep this program and so many other amazing programs on WBAI on the air. We all know there's so much commercial radio out there and there's um, uh, other uh, listener supported radio that also uh, has a lot of corporate sponsorships, but here at, at WBAI, you get community, real community radio, peace and justice radio talking about issues that really matter that you often don't hear about in the in the mainstream media. And uh, it's listeners like you who make it possible. 212-209-2950. Give number two, WBAI.org. In our third and final segment, we're going to uh, take a moment to talk about retired city wi- workers and why they are fighting back against plans uh, hatched by the city and the de Blasio administration and public sector union leaders to save money by placing these retired workers who work in many cases for decades for the city and for the people of New York and move them from Medicare to a privately run version of Medicare known as Medicare Advantage. Well, many of these workers are concerned about this. They don't uh, think this is going to be to their advantage. They've uh, protested and recently and called attention to this. And we're fortunate to be joined now by uh, two uh, retirees, uh, both from the Teachers Union, the United Federation of Teachers, uh, Roberta Pixer and Norm Scott, uh, who've been uh, leaders in this effort. Uh, Roberta and Norm, welcome to the uh, Independent News Hour on WBAI. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having us. Really. Certainly. So uh, let's, let's just jump into it. Uh, what are your main concerns about what the the city is trying to do in ter- in terms of uh, moving you and uh, an estimated 200,000 other retired workers from Medicare to Medicare Advantage, this uh, privately run operation. I, I would like to insert something here. We're supposed to be talking about retirees. But as we saw in your last or as we heard in your last segment, this is about the monetization of medical care. That's what's going on, whether it's black mothers who are young or old people who are from the unions who worked our whole lives and paid into Medicare. This is about who's getting the money. And that's, for me, that's really the underlying issue. This is about the medical industry. So I just wanted to make that connection. Go ahead, Norm. Yeah, Yeah, Norm, do you want to say more about the specific concerns you'll have about this uh, plan? Okay, so I'm I'm, uh, I've been on Medicare for for 11 years. I'm 76 now, so at 65, you, know, you, know, you remember the debates, they, will, they always just to say, oh, you're going to lose your, if, if you go for Medicare for all, you're going to lose your health plan. Well, I, I lost my UFT health plan. Everyone did. When you're 65, you're pretty much forced into a Medicare situation. You know, I, I, no, I retired at 57. So I had a, I had a, 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 a 
sort of a privatized plan from the UFT and the city. But at 65, I had to give up, in essence, uh, uh, my, 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 my normal UFT plan and take Medicare, go into Medicare, which covers 80% of your costs. And you still have 20% co-pays that's covered by the city. And, and, and that's the privatized part. But what they want to do now, and they, they made an agreement in 2018, they're going to save the city $600 million this year. And they come up with an idea that, well, let's, let's, give, let's force you out of Medicare, which is the government-run plan, the federally government-run plan, into a privatized version of that plan called Medicare Advantage. Uh, right now, I think over 40% of uh, people in this country have switched to a Medicare Advantage plan, which looks on the surface, well, what's so bad about it? Well, um, there are a couple of things. It is privatized. Well, what does that mean? That means someone's making a profit. Um, they have administrative costs that are approximately 15 to 17%, whereas Medicare uh, costs are about 2%. Um, that, that Medicare has a more, a more, a more um, professional workforce in a sense. When I say professional, I mean that they have a, a long-term people who really know what they're talking about, whereas um, privatized care has more turnover, possibly paying lower salaries. I can't guarantee that. And of course, there's uh, high executive salaries uh, in, 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 in privatized plans. So what is that? And, and enormous paperwork. I mean, talk to any doctor. Why so many doctors won't take Medicare Advantage plans is because one reason is the paperwork alone. Um, and, and then getting claims rejected, getting them, having to resubmit uh, Medicare is uh, a much more smoothly operating plan. So now, if you do the math of what I sort of just described, how can, can where does the $600 million come from uh, that they're going to save? Oh, are they going to give up their profit? <laughs> are they going to lower their executive salaries? Are they going to cut their administrative costs? The math just doesn't work that, uh, on the plan the UFT is trying to, and, and, all, and the Municipal Labor Council and all the unions, us seem to be trying to sell uh, to us. Oh, you're going to get a, a a great plan, right? I, right. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'd so like to interject, Norm. Yeah. That you're going to get a, a great plan. This is separating us one from the other, and that's the underlying issue for me. This is about healthcare is not for everybody. If you have a good plan with your union, then you'll be okay. But you, the other person who doesn't have such a great plan, you don't get such good care. Or you have to buy your own. This is about splitting us up. And I think that is really the issue that people have to understand. If we don't fight for each other, we're all going to get shafted one way or another. Right. And, and, and we, since we just have a minute or two left here, mm-hmm. one thing that uh, really struck me as I was reading up about this, it, it, with Medicare Advantage, when you know people hit the 65 age uh, threshold, uh, Medicare uh, Advantage uh, can offer uh, you know cheaper uh, cheaper rates and, and will offer something like you know gym memberships and you know some other perks yeah. that 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 might work for somebody at sixty five who's in fairly good health. But what people don't realize is when they're seventy five or eighty five, they can't necessarily unenroll from Medicare Advantage, and and when they're in their health has really begun to falter, all of a sudden they find their access to care restricted. And that, that seems where the savings are, are coming from is denying John, people. Actually, they can unenroll at, when, when, when the, the time of the year comes where you can change enrollments. And, and many people are forced to re- go back to Medicare uh, uh, be, at, 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 at re-enrollment time. So what if you get sick when, when you can't re-enroll, you find yourself getting caught with bills. And so they actually have, I think in the article we were talking about that they, they actually have figures that show that as people age, they start leaving the Medicare Advantage plans because they sort of feel that they're, they're getting hit with higher costs and less specialists that they need to go to, and they switch back to Medicare. 98% of the doctors in this country take Medicare. Yeah. We, we have about uh, th- uh, 30 seconds here before we mm-hmm. have to, to cut out. Uh, anything you want to tell our listeners who, who might be concerned about this, who might be in your situation or have a family member? Uh, who's a, a retired city worker? Uh, how can they find more about out more about this effort to uh, to st- stop what's going on here? 
Well, inside the UFT, I'm, I'm, we're, we're working with Retiree Advocate, which is a caucus of retirees inside the UFT. Um, each union has its, has some action going on in terms of pushing back, but we can right now, we can, uh, uh maybe, uh, 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 Roberta has access to other unions, but, uh, we had a press conference and we're possibly planning other actions. And, and I think people should keep that, keep attuned to what might be happening. We're trying to work with people in other unions to build up a coalition of people. And, 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 and John, the important thing to understand we, is that we've got it. We've got it. We have sorry. like 10 seconds okay. here. We got it. So it's going to affect working teachers too, uh, in the future. That this is a, yes. a long term thing that's just starting with us. They had eight options, exactly. and they chose us as the option to go after. So. Right. Everybody uh, gets uh, old at some point. So, all right, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Roberta Pixer and uh, Norm Scott, uh, retired uh, members of the United Federation of Teachers, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. Thank you. you Thanks. You Thanks. bet. All right. we, we, thank have you. To leave, we have to leave it there, and uh, we'll be back same time next week. Uh, Thanks to my co-host, Amba Gagarian, also to uh, Zion uh, Decato, who uh, reported from the field. And uh, one more time, that number for giving to WBAI, 212-209-2950. And also give number two, WBAI.org, support community radio. You make it possible. Thank you.